Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam podcast. I'm Rustin, your host, and today I'm here with Manija Nasrabadi, Assistant Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College. Manija, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. It's good to have a uh, institutional neighbor on the show. I've been talking yeah. to people all over the world right now, but it's good to come back to New York a little yes. bit. I'm really excited to have her on the show because she's doing some amazing work on a really interesting and uh, fascinating part of Iranian history, which is the student groups of Iranians that were operating in the U.S. during the 1970s, so um, specifically the Confederation of Iranian Students. She has a forthcoming book coming out in 2020 entitled Neither Washington Nor Tehran, Iranian Internationalism in the United States. I, I did some work on some of the student groups and some of their visual kind of propaganda efforts and posters right around the time of the revolution. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Just for our listeners, um, who were the Confederacion? Like, um, can you contextualize them in kind of the history of the student movement in the United States? But also, how did they get there? Why were they there in the first place? Thank you. I'm glad you asked. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting um, part of the story of U.S. Cold War uh, expansion into the Middle East and other parts of the world. So the Confederation of Iranian Students um, began in uh, the early 1960s in Europe. But even prior to that, the Iranian Students Association existed in the U.S. And, and it was set up actually through um, a CIA front group um, and in conjunction with the Iranian state to make sure that Iranian foreign students who began coming to the U.S. in increasing numbers after the 1953 coup in Iran to make sure that those students would basically, uh, you know, not make trouble, do what they were told. Um, uh, in other words, get the kind of Western education that was intended for them. Not getting um, radicalized. Right. And um, in uh, around 1961, 1962, um, students who were very critical of the Shah maneuvered to take control of the leadership bodies of the Iranian Students Association and turn it into an opposition group, which then affiliated with the Confederation of Iranian Students uh, that was forming in, in Europe around the same time. So by 1962, there is this transnational formation, Confederation of Iranian Students spread throughout Europe, um, especially in Germany, England, France, and in the U.S., and it, it, it spreads to Canada. Eventually, you have chapters in Turkey, parts of India, um, and some other places. Um, but my research focused on the U.S., and I think about these students. You asked, you know, why were they here in the first place? Um, I think about them as imperial model minorities. That's the, the term I've come up with, which reveals something about my engagement with Asian American studies and the, the, the figure of the, um, you know, the model minority immigrant um, who, who comes to the U.S. and shows that, you know, you can work hard and get ahead and assimilate and make good. And that, you know, uh, therefore, if there are racialized groups, especially African-Americans who haven't been able to do that, it's then their own fault. Right. So the, the figure of the Asian model minority kind of masks the systemic aspects of racism and class society. Right. By by being held up as this exception. Well, in the, the foreign students were being recruited to come to the U.S. Um, in the thousands and eventually tens of thousands, precisely at that moment when the U.S. was um, expanding its its Cold War influence around the world and and promoting um, 
a form of modernization of capitalist development as an alternative to communism, right? The forms of modernization that the U.S. was pushing in Iran, they were pushing in other parts of the world as well. And those required a kind of, um, you know, indigenous bourgeoisie, right, with Western degrees yes. who could who could go home and be that technocratic managerial professional class that could run and, and remake the nation, you know, in the image of um, a kind of, you know, U.S. model of development. So so these uh, students, they were sort of the best and brightest. You know, they were supposed to come here and really assimilate and internalize a pro-U.S. worldview. And, and as well as the technocratic knowledge they needed to then go home and kind of run, um, oversee this process of modernization um, and to mask the... Um, uh, the sort of seedy underbelly of Pax Amer Americana, which were dictatorships, police states, torture, right? Um, rep repression of dissent, lack of democracy and freedom went hand in hand with these forms of capitalist development. So the imperial model minority is supposed to somehow um, cover up those contradictions. Well, in fact, those contradictions um, were were too much for, for some people. Um, of course, it was a minority among the tens of thousands of foreign students, but a significant minority that began um, that that could not reconcile those two pieces. That could not accept so-called modernization with dictatorship, um, and found that to be um, a, a hypocritical stance imposed on the third world. Um, and came to the U.S. and because they were here at a time when so many Americans from different backgrounds were also questioning the systemic forms of racism, of imperial violence in places like Vietnam and elsewhere, They're, they were here at a, at a moment in time when U.S. imperialism in, and, and U.S. capitalism um, were, were really being held up for critical examination and were becoming the targets of um, many, many different student movements. Um, so I think about American universities as kind of imperial metropoles, right? And, and sites of overlapping diasporas where Iranian foreign students could literally meet and compare notes with Egyptian students, Jamaican students, Ethiopian students, um, Palestinian students, Chilean students. You know, I mean, people could actually um, um, get a sense that what was happening in Iran, what was happening in these other places was related. Right. And they could impact and influence um, each other's understanding of national freedom struggles in a more internationalist um, way. And this kind of gets to the heart of your your book title, which is um, internationalism. Right. Or this idea of a world solidarity or a global struggle against uh, the forces of oppression. Um, so you talk about the cases of other international students coming from other parts of the world, but what was the Iranian students' reaction and um, experience with, let's say, the the, the struggles of um, Americans, for example, the civil rights movement, the Chicano movement? Well, they were they were tremendously impacted, and you know, I I really had to think about and account for the fact that Iranians kept popping up in these unlikely places. Like, for example, one of the kind of iconic struggles of the late 1960s student movement in the U.S. is the third world student strike at San Francisco State University, right? And that was um, a strike in which ideas of black power and, and uh, black revolutionary politics were front and center, but it's also a strike in which new formations came into being precisely around this notion of third world solidarity so that you could bring together Asian American students and Native American students and Chicano and black and have not 
sense that, well, we're all we're all the same, not to homogenize or reduce those differences, but to say we can come together around our distinct but interrelated experiences of racism, imperialism, and the rest of it. So um, Iranian students didn't fit any of those models, right? They weren't minority citizens seeking inclusion or greater representation in the student body or the curriculum. You know, they didn't have um, the experience of being um, marginalized within the U.S. nation state. And yet, you you look through the archives and you find members of the ISA, Iranian students, participating in the strike. In fact, in some cases, leading some of the actions, you know, breaking into buildings and leading occupations and getting arrested. And at that time, you know, getting arrested meant really risking your life because you would be deported back to Iran where, of course, they, Savak was operating in the U.S. and they knew who you were and you, and you were definitely risking imprisonment, torture, and even worse. And so I had to ask myself, you know, what was it that, you know, moved these Iranians to take these risks in support of a strike that didn't have any demands that had anything to do with Iran or U.S. support for the Shah or or anything like that, right? And that strike has always been thought about in a kind of like narrow domestic way, right? Um, and so I had to think about really the... the um, the role of of affect, of emotion, of feelings, of political feelings, you know, what does it mean when you see a group of people who maybe you don't even know that much about? For example, you know, you don't know all about the history of African Americans in Oakland or San Francisco. You don't even really understand anti-black racism in its depths and specificity coming from Iran. And yet you see a group of people standing up. You see a people, a group of people fighting back. You see a group of people who refuse to accept um, a situation of injustice. And you're drawn to that because you have your own experiences of injustice. And so I think a lot about how um, being affected by different forms of state repression, discrimination, um, and, and you know, actually um, enabled very different groups of people. I, I sometimes talk about differently situated subjects of U.S. empire, right? So you can think about, you know, black diaspora, African-Americans and Iranians, you know, as these subjects of U.S. empire in different ways, right? But the feelings allowed people to identify with one another, you know, and to, to recognize injustice and to recognize um, that desire to resist and then to, to come together. So some of the Iranian students were actually members of the Black Student Union. I mean, you know, or joined Arab student unions. So we don't, you know, we find among these leftists um, a real rejection of narrow nationalistic notions of what it means to be Iranian. Um, we find that um, they are um, rejecting both the the dominant discourses, uh, the dominant ways of thinking coming out of, of of Washington and Tehran at that time, right? They're rejecting the notion that the American way, um, you know, fighting communism and, and spreading capitalism and assimilating into that is the only alternative. They're rejecting um, forms of Persian nationalism, and they're really identifying with this kind of broad sense of um, third world anti-colonialism um, and internationalism. And you can see that in places like the San Francisco state strike. Uh, could you give us some more information about the composition of the Confederation, uh, the, the ISA? What sort of organizational work did it do? How did it function? What were the branches like? How are the branches uh, talking to one another? I mean, this is something that, um, as your research shows, is something that is happening all across American and European campuses. How yes. do they communicate with one another? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Before the internet and, and the kinds of the forms of communication we're so dependent on today, um, well, there were a, a few different ways they had uh, they had print publications that circulated. Um, they had Persian language publications and English language publications because they were also trying to influence the Americans around them and turn public opinion 
against U.S. support for the Shah. That was a hugely important part of their work. But they had publications like Donish Jew um, and and others that um, they would put in the mail and mail to all the branches, you know, and read reports of what was going on in different um, chapters. They also had uh, annual national conventions and they had, um, you know, world conferences too, where folks would come together from across all the different countries. So, um, and I think they would also send in reports regularly from the various chapters to, um, they had national leadership bodies that were elected and then international leadership bodies that were elected. Um, so there was definitely a sense of a kind of democratic centralist model that would facilitate communication, you know, between different rungs of leadership and the kind of base of, of uh, activists in local chapters. Um, so that's and then in each local chapter, they had elected leadership and it was divided. I think there were five members usually of a kind of um, local committees. You know, one person worked on, for example, publications. One person worked on kind of membership organizing. One person was their international person who did the solidarity work with other movements. Um, sometimes those, those other movements were right there, but they were international in the sense they weren't about Iran. Um, and so, you know, they had a division of labor. And um, the other thing that I've really looked at are some of the the class and gender um, com composition demographics of the um, membership, which um, started out as mostly male, uh, mostly very well off, because you know you think who had who could afford to send their children to come and study in the U.S., especially in the '60s. Um, and I've looked at how that also begins to change over time, how more women start coming, um, and also um, especially. In the 1970s, during the, the oil boom, um, many of the children of kind of, um, you know, kind of lower middle class, maybe white collar oil workers um, are able to get scholarships and come from um, the south of Iran. So again, it's not just Tehran, people coming from other places. Um, and you have uh, more kind of working class or, or first, you know, the first generation of of um, lower middle class, um, the, the children of those people begin to start to come. And that changes the class composition um, and um, politics of the of the Confederation um, as well. So I, I focus a lot on the gender dynamics, the gender and sexual politics of the movement, which is something that hasn't really been looked at before. Um, so I'm happy to talk more about that. Oh, actually, if you could um, elaborate on that, for example, um, what was the engagement with um, feminist uh, theory, feminist scholarship in the 1960s and 70s um, in the Confederacion? None. Zero. Zero. Yes. And yet, <laughs> and yet. And so it's very interesting because, as I was saying before, all of these other liberation movements become what I call, you know, sites of sort of affective attachment. I talk about a kind of affects of solidarity that begins to develop where it's like, oh, the Chicanos are marching. Of course, we're going to send a contingent. You know, oh, the... Um, you know, there's a there's a demonstration outside the Ethiopian consulate. Of course, we're going, you know, um, Palestine. I mean, I have, you know, some Palestinian activists who I interviewed who said, oh, the Iranians, they were more Palestinian than the Palestinians. You know, <laughs> they were so consistently active. Right. And yet the women's liberation movement is coming around, you know, the same time out of the late 1960s moment you know, flourishes in the 70s, was in so many organizational forms. And that does not become, very distinctly, does not become a site of affective attachment, solidarity, or what have you for members of the Iranian Students Association. However, 
the presence of women's liberation movements on these campuses and in the surrounding areas, you know, it it impacts the milieu, right? So um, there are conversations that start to happen in various chapters, and it, it it's different it, depending on your location and how much you know. It's it's different in Berkeley than in um, you know smaller more remote places. Um, But basically, you start having conversations within the ISA around what they call male chauvinism. Um, And in fact, in the Northern California chapter at Berkeley, they started a committee to end male chauvinism. I forget the exact title, but it's basically like an awareness that the gender dynamics internally are a problem. They are um, something we need to address systematically to study and understand and change. And that came from, you know, from some of the women, but also some of the men who were like open to that and really wanted to take it on, you know. Um, In fact, there was even a pamphlet produced by some of the women in the Northern California chapter um, that was attempting to articulate, you know, very much within the leftist language of the time, but attempting to articulate a critique of patriarchy, imperialism, and dictatorship together that I found in the archives and have been trying to work with. So I think that there, you know, there was an impact that feminism, that women's liberation had, um, but it but it was um, not direct and um, explicit because it was uh, because the the kind of dominance of um, the versions of Maoism and third world Marxism that circulated in the time, not just among Iranians but on the U.S. left more broadly, um, were highly suspect, right? Um, and saw feminism as Western as bourgeois, as a white women's thing. Um, I ta- When I interviewed some of the Iranian women who were involved, I said, well, did you know about black feminism? Did you know about women of color feminism? No, they didn't. You know, so, so they were not really oriented around those movements or those politics. Um, for them, imperialism was the, you know, imperialism and capitalism, the revolution had to be focused on those. We need unity to, to fight those enemies. And things like feminism are divisive, right? We, they associated feminism with separatism. Um, and it was sort of like, well, that's a luxury that colonized people or third world people don't have. And so it's not relevant to us. So I look at what that meant then in terms of how women in the ISA did try to actually find their own liberation through inclusion and incorporation and belonging in the Iranian revolutionary left and some of the limitations of that. I mean, you talk about unity and divisiveness, and we're talking about neither Washington and Tehran. Um, can you give us a rundown of the ideological or political landscape of the ISA? I mean, you're, you're mentioning Mao, you're mentioning the left, but were all students affiliated with the left? Were there some Khomeinist parties or uh, groups within it? How did they reflect or mirror what was happening on the ground in Iran and vice versa? How did the ISA end up affecting or influencing Iranian politics? Was there, did you see this in any of your um, archival research? Well, let me take a step back because those are a series of really important questions. Um, So the ISA, you know, it changes over time. You know, it's interesting to put them in relation to like Students for a Democratic Society in the U.S. or, you know, other kind of broad student formations that over time, um, you know, fragment and split along ideological lines as some sections of those broad umbrella student organizations kind of take the leftist turn. You know, some of them become 
um, Maoists or Marxist-Leninists or different things, and others don't, right? And so things fragment. Something similar happens within the ISA, you know, that in fact in 1975, there's a formal split. Um, But before that, leading up to that, what you have is um, officially the ISA is like a student union for all Iranian foreign students. You know, it does, you don't have to be a revolutionary or a leftist. It's not a party. It's for everybody. And it's increasingly anti-Shah, right? But within that, more and more, there are these sort of underground leftist parties unofficially operating. I mean, everybody everybody knows who's in which party. Mm-hmm. It's like a known secret, sure. but it's unofficial. It's not explicit. Um, and um, and these organizations have a range of different political views. Um, one of them is um, a split from the Tudé party, um, the revolutionary organization, which is like kind of like a new generation trying to um, reimagine communism outside of Soviet dominance. Um, you have... Um, you know, Maoist formations that are unique to the um, U.S. diasporic context um, that come primarily out of Berkeley, but then spread to other ISA chapters, um, the Etahadiye Communist Ha, I'm thinking of. Um, you have um, very, very left-wing kind of Marxist versions of Jeb Bemeli, of the, you know, um, National Front. The National Front. Um, you have um, a minority of two dead party members who would maybe be concentrated in like the first generation of folks who came. Um, and you have um, increasingly in the 19, later 1970s, Fedayeen supporters. And of course, there are splits and then those splits are reflected in diasporic <laughs> affiliations. Um, but I think what's been interesting to me is to kind of take a step back because, you know, these factions were so hostile to each other. And they, um, you know, eventually the, the movement split. They split apart at the seams kind of over this question of like how, you know, should the ISA be a revolutionary organization or should it be a broad student coalition? coalition. That could, right. Um, oh, I forgot to say very early on, they kicked out the religious folks. They did that. And so there really was a divide between secular and religious. And most of the religious foreign students like who went on to play really important roles in the you know, revolution itself, I'm thinking of um, Gobzadeh and others, they ended up being active with like Muslim student associations and other formations. Um, So the ISA really was defined by a kind of secular leftist character um, uh, for most of its existence um, and, um, and did split in 1975. But that did not mean that people were hostile to Khomeini. Those those weren't how the lines were drawn um, so that, you know, many of these leftist groups were really open to uh, Khomeini and what he was arguing. And, of course, he picked up a lot of the language of the left. But when I take a step back and look at um, Fedayeen and Etihadi and revolutionary organization, a lot, you know, what emerges a generation later, <laughs> um, and, and this is, you know, I, I have to talk about my own relationship to this work like what emerges when you when you look at it a generation later are the similarities in fact you know they may have disagreed about china or cuba or you know soviet imperialism versus you know there were all these things you know they were fighting over and was the revolution going to be led by guerrillas or was it going to be a mass base was it going to be rural was it going to be urban? you know they had all of these debates that seemed so important at the time but when you take a step back actually the political cultures that they developed the, the kinds of revolutionary subjectivity what they valued how they organized social relations 
motivations, the the notions of self-sacrifice, um, the um, disciplining of, of gender and different ways, the temporality of revolution where you're so, you know, you assume you're going to go back to Iran and work in the underground and be, be killed, you know, so you give up everything. You don't care about your studies. You don't, you're, you're totally off that developmentalist linear track of like, get your degree, get married, have children, have a career. Like nobody's doing that. You know, there's, there's so much that they actually have in common um, that I think have to do with the, the dominant idioms of anti-imperialist, anti-colonial struggles at the time. That's not unique to the Iranian case. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of wary of using 79 as this watershed moment of like this rupture. But in this case, I mean, 1979 has a huge, huge impact and that reverberates throughout the ISA and, and the members of the ISA. Can you talk a little bit about 1978, 1979 within ISA, how people were talking about it and what ultimately happens to the ISA once 1980 comes along? Like what, what is the, the trajectory of the ISA during, uh, during this turbulent time? Well, I often think about it like this. I mean, you can imagine campuses like UC Berkeley or San Francisco State where there are there are so many leftist liberation movements organizing and they're all calling for revolution. And and in all of their propaganda, revolution is imminent. Revolution is coming. You know, if you read Black Panther Party um, literature or what have you, everyone's calling for revolution. It's only the Iranians that actually get one, you know, and so they're, they're calling for this revolution. It actually happens, right? But of course, uh -oh. it's, it's not the revolution of their making. And oh, you asked before if they had any impact on events in Iran. Not really. No, they really didn't. Um, so when the revolution begins, the, the mass demonstrations and strikes, um, people start going home. So the, the, the biggest reaction is, you know, what am I doing in the U.S.? It's finally happening and it's finally safe to go back. Some people snuck, snuck in kind of, you know, um, went, went home kind of incognito under the radar before it was totally safe to go back. But once it's really, once the revolution's really in full swing, like, Mostly everybody goes back because it's they want to be there. They want to participate. They were only in the U.S. after all because they couldn't organize openly in Iran, right? But but the whole time their hearts and, and minds are in Iran and now they finally go back. So so the ISA, um, um, many of the people who were here a long time and really were the leadership and building it, you know, a lot of those people go home and they, they don't they don't organize as the ISA back home. They organize with their leftist parties. Um, of course, many students had just come, had just arrived um, when the revolution takes off. And so, you know, they're also holding pro-revolution demonstrations in the U.S. in support of Khomeini, demanding, you know, when, when the Shah is hospitalized in the U.S., demanding he be extradited to. So there are there are sites of activity that students um, under the banner of different ISAs because it had split, you know, our people are organizing and rallying, but it, it, it falls apart pretty quickly. It falls apart pretty quickly, um, like I said, because so many people went home um, and the folks who are here are faced with um, a, a kind of new phenomenon, really, which is a virulent anti-Iranian sentiment, um, physical attacks, lots of media demonization, and basically, you know, are, are suppressed. They have to cancel their pro-Khomeini demonstrations because they're getting beat up. Right. And they're losing public sympathy, which they had before. So the ISA basically ceases to exist, you know, in any kind of, you know, real form. Um, After 1980. Yeah. 
I know that in addition to archival work, you also have interlocutors. Um, most of them are still in the United States and in Europe. What are some of your experiences with interviewing or speaking with former members of the ISA? How do they look back on this moment of social upheaval and of uh, promise? Well, that was actually one of my main research questions. You know, how do people remember and hold and carry this history? So, you know, I'm not coming at it. I'm not coming at this as a historian. I'm coming at this partly as a political activist and partly as a scholar. And, you know, my question is sort of, you know, what meaning do we make of all of this? What is the inheritance? What is the legacy? What, you know, what, what does this now mean? What, what can this history make um, possible or imaginable for us now today in the diaspora. Um, so the process of conducting the interviews um, was really fascinating. I am writing about that too, right, about the actual being in the room and what happens there because for many of these people, and the everyone I interviewed, um, I think except like one or two people had gone home for the revolution, participated in various ways, and then because of the repression, they had to flee again and come back to the U.S. where they had never imagined that they would ever be again, right? Um, so um, so these are all people currently living in the U.S. with, with one exception. Um, but for, you know, in the post-79 diaspora, uh, which is primarily characterized by people who fled the revolution, um, the leftists have been you know, kind of pariahs, right? Like there's so much um, demonization of the left that they were complicit with the rise of Khomeini, um, that they have blood on their hands, that they were reckless, immature, dogmatic, authoritarian in their own ways. And so there's been very little space for these folks to really talk about what what they loved about being in the ISA, but also to reflect critically on mistakes they made without that being sort of used to undermine and discredit the entire thing. So because I come at this from, um, you know, my own kind of queer, diasporic, feminist, leftist location, I'm very sympathetic to recuperating aspects of their nationalism and, and the rest of it, which I think are sorely needed and missing in the current diaspora. But I also, you know, have have my my critiques, you know, um, but they could tell that I was with them and that my critiques are coming from from within or from within a tradition that I'm trying to um, remake in a way that I hope will be more effective. I'm not trying to renounce the entire project. Right. So that gave people the space, you know, to to recall things, to talk about memories, to talk about, you know, losses that have not been legible in the diaspora um, previously. For example, you know, the the loss of the dream of the possible future of the Iran that never came to be, but that you believed in and you held and you could taste and glimpse briefly at certain moments in the early days of the revolution. And the nostalgia for not life under the Shah, not that version of what Iran could have been, right, which is so dominant in the diaspora, but nostalgic for... Um, for the Iran that never came to be, you know, that that more free, more democratic, socialist future that didn't come to pass. And, you know, the space to, to grieve that, to reflect critically on the mistakes they made. You know, I didn't interview people who were trying to make themselves look good and trying to say, oh, well, I always knew that it was going to be this way. And, you know, people were really humble and really um, 
honest about their own disorientation, their own confusion, their own their own blinders and dogmatisms and the things they got wrong, but at a kind of emotional and affective level, you could see that there's a there's this really melancholic relationship to their um, their days in the ISA where they they still do want to hold on to something about those times, about what it was like to be part of a collective, right? What it was like to be part of something that felt global, that was bigger than than just Iran and just you, where you felt that history was on your side, that you could actually win, that the oppressed could could win, you know, that feeling that it was possible to win, <laughs> quite frankly. We, we've lost that, you know? Um, their exact vision of revolution I have problems with, their their way of organizing it and their doctrines I have problems with, and so do they now looking back. But that but that feeling um, of um, devoting oneself to a larger project of human liberation that felt viable and plausible and winnable, I think is worth recuperating. Nanija, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. Here's to hope, right? Thank you so much, Rustin. It's a pleasure to be here. That was Manija Nasrabadi, um, Assistant Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Barnard. Uh, look out for her coming book, Neither Washington Nor Tehran, at Duke University Press. As always, uh, for listeners, if you would like to continue the conversation with us, find us on social media, Facebook or Twitter. Until next time. <laughs>